Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day there and welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute at ANU and this podcast is a joint production of the Crawford School of Public Policy. Now, have you ever wondered how to be a Liberal? I don't mean a paid-up support of the Liberal Party of Australia, but an actual Liberal, someone who believes in freedom, democracy, individual choice and initiative, perhaps even in progressive change. My guest on this penultimate episode of Democracy Sausage Extra has addressed himself to this question at some length with a new and compelling book, How to Be a Liberal. His name is Ian Dunt, and you might know him as editor of politics.co.uk or even from columns in the Washington Post, the Irish Times and The Guardian. Or indeed, you might know him from such shows as the hit podcast Romaniacs, a personal favourite of mine, which, despite its cast of witty and socially adjusted brainiacs, failed to steer Britons away from colossal self-harm. Ian Dunn, welcome to Democracy Sausage, Australia's most determinedly pro-Remain politics podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And and your podcast is no longer called that, is it? Uh, it's called something like, Oh God, What Now? That is exactly what it is called. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of negotiation about that um, after the vote. You couldn't, I mean, to be honest, by the end of it, you just, uh, nine months later, you couldn't keep on calling yourselves Romaniacs because there's nothing to remain to. But you were trying to communicate like that sense of a gang and a sense of a resistance to this sort of terrible populist wave that has taken over Britain and, of course, lots of other countries. And so in the end, we just came up with a name that was basically the words that come out our mouth every time we switch on the news. So it's now called, or God, what now? Same basic ideas, but we kind of had to move away slightly from Brexit and cover, as well as Brexit, you know, Donald Trump and all the other dreadful things that Boris Johnson is doing. It was so uh, such an interesting podcast for us outside of Britain to listen to through that whole period because it 
it, you know, the uh, I guess the incredulity that uh, many of us felt that you often articulated you and your and your fellow podcasters articulated about what what Britain was doing. It seemed uh, unfathomable to most of us that uh, there was any sense in in this. And and then there were, of course, all those you know different ways in which you know the technical ways as it was working its way through. Uh, through Westminster, that it could have gone, it you know could have got delayed and 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 been qualified in some way, uh, but in the end, uh, it was it was it became a reality and uh, and it's now very close to the end. So yes, it was a, a <laughs> it was an interesting project and most entertaining, but uh, a little bit depressing as well. It's funny. I was listening to an American podcast yesterday, um, and they were talking about abortion in the U.S. and there was a sort of Republican senator who'd made some proposals about basically sort of restricting the way in which women who'd had miscarriages were able to bury their children. I mean, stuff that was so insane, like so brutal and insane. You just thought, how could anyone possibly reach that stage? But I think that's often what happens when you're outside of the culture looking in on it. When you're inside of these things, it's not really about the logical proposition itself. It's about most of the actors are basically driven by their tribal identity and by demonstrating to other members of their political tribe how virtuous they are, you know, just just how much of an ideal representation of that tribe they are. And that's what leads them to these ever more extreme positions. So now when you look at the Brexit, I mean, there are plenty of people in the Conservative Party right now who treat any notion of a free trade deal with the EU. I mean, this is just a basic FTA, you know, the kind of trade deal that you would see with other countries all over the world to treat any free trade deal with the EU as being a sort of conspiracy by Remain. Now, those guys did not hold that position four years ago. Four years ago, it was all like, you know, oh, we'll have access to the single market. Everything will basically continue economically as it is, but we'll get back decision-making power. But you get this kind of, whenever you get tribal politics disconnected from objective reality, from empirical reality, it becomes a kind of degenerative proposition um, on an almost epistemological level, right? People just start to break down the mm. reasons that they do things and start to do them to demonstrate their tribal membership, their tribal value. And I think that's what you've seen with Brexit. And it's also what you see in many other countries, for instance, in the abortion debate in the US. And indeed, it's what you see with a lot of identity politics um, and with with sort of woke culture, I suppose, you know, this, this uh, kind of endless need to to sort of be pure and to find new ways to express that ideological purity. And so um, this brings us very neatly to the subject of your book, liberalism, because liberalism is under attack in a sense or it's under assault really from a number of different angles, from from nationalism, which you've written quite a lot about in the book, but also from these other um, – these other elements, as I say, sort of identity elements, where liberalism has uh, has perhaps not performed well in trying trying to contemplate how power is constructed and how uh, how society ought to be organised. Let's let's have a look at the um, at the nationalism part of it first, because you list out a number of of the sort of key lies of nationalism, and so perhaps you could just talk about that for a minute. Um, you know, you've mentioned Donald Trump and 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 elements of the um, of Boris Johnson's campaign, and of course the Brexit campaign. There've been nationalist movements right through Europe as well, and Poland and and places like that. So, it's th- these these states are immensely illiberal, or these political movements are immensely illiberal. Yeah, they are, and you see, I mean, they always have their own national flavour, right? 
you know, if you look at the Kurd in Israel or if you look at um, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary or if you look at Bolsonaro in Brazil, I mean, they're very the targets that they pick are very different, usually specifically in terms of what's the immigrant group that's being targeted. Sometimes there's another social minority, for instance, um, in Poland, the gay community has been savagely attacked by the government. Um, and the language is quite different. But you know what's funny is the basic structure of the political project is almost always has certain key elements that are the same in each place. I mean, one of the first ones is that there is an attack on the notion of objective truth, that most of the people who will provide you with empirical information, investigative journalists or economic bodies or think tanks or NGOs, um, come under sustained attack. And they're always referenced in the same way. Like in every case, they're always called the elite, right? They're always the elite. They're a media elite, they're an intellectual elite, and they're painted as being somehow in league with sort of shadowy enemy forces outside of the country and traitor forces within the country. Then the, everyone that supports the Nationalist Party is given the phrase, the people. And again, you see that in almost every single case that you look at, the people. And the people does not mean the electorate. What the people means is our supporters. They are like the true representation of the yeah. country. They're virtuous, they're pure, and most importantly of all, they're homogenous. So they can be represented by, in a sort of mystical kind of process by the leaders of the nationalist parties. You also see an attack on the institutions, the parliaments, the courts. And again, I would suggest this stuff goes all the way back in liberal histories because the parliaments and the courts are there to divide power, to split it to make sure that too much of it doesn't just sit with the executive. And for that reason, I mean, that is the reason they exist in the first place. That's one of the reasons they're a core component of how liberalism functions. And so in case after case, country after country, divided by continents, divided by characteristics, by cultural traits, the same thing happens. They attack the institution. So the fascinating thing about these movements is, yes, on a quite superficial sort of level, they have different targets, different ways of talking, but in terms of the fundamental project, they almost all do precisely the same thing. Yes, and it's interesting this uh, deploying of this idea, the people, because it has this uh, it has this prima facie virtue to it, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, particularly because these are debates that occur in democracies, and the idea that the people decide uh, who their who their representatives are, who forms their governments, uh, this is quite fundamental. So you take that virtue and you talk about it as if the people themselves are under attack, under attack from the very institutions which, as you said mediate power and which 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 regulate and divide power in, in ways that are sustainable and don't result ideally in in the sorts of abuses that uh, that that uh, populists say they do but this is a, a a whole process and we see it being played over and over again the people rendered as a as a kind of a virtuous mass but it's not really the case is it in the end the people end up with fewer rights than they started out with yeah exactly you know the funny thing is that Democracy is not the same as talking about the people. Right? I mean, what democracy is, is a system that is grounded in individual freedom. In this case, your individual freedom to have consent over the government under which you live, to have some voice in how it is formed. And when the idea of democracy came up in liberal thought, that's how it was originally defined as an expression of the individual, right? Individual consent. The people was a different notion. It's essentially this idea of a mass of humanity, of a blob of humanity. And when you go back and it's kind of, it's archaeology, I think the person that you find, 
I mean, it existed before then. I mean, it was used in the English Civil War, for instance. But ultimately, the, the first place you find in a really pronounced way, I think, is Rousseau. And Rousseau had this idea of the general will. The general will, it sounds democratic, but it really isn't. It's this idea of this kind of transcendent collective consciousness that just takes place on a bunch of quite similar people. He was imagining like a city state. He was from Switzerland, right? And when they get together and they start making political decisions, and it, it, it was as if distinctions between them didn't really exist. So the idea that like a majority would oppress a minority didn't properly occur to him. I mean, there's a little bit with religion, but generally speaking, he was quite dismissive of it. So there was, for instance, no need for individual rights, for human rights, you know, to prevent, for instance, you know, one race from oppressing another race or protect women from men locking them up in, in the living room or the bedroom so they couldn't go out. None of that was required because there was a kind of collective sort of consciousness that emerged from this unit, this block of the people. And that's the kind of thought you see it in lots of very pernicious ways throughout history. You see it during the bloodbath of the terror in France. You see it under Soviet communism. You see it under Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany. These two ideologies, fascism and communism, which were ostensibly completely opposed to each other, but both had roots in Rousseau and that idea of the people. And you see it in a much more watered down, much more moderate way, of course, than communism or fascism with the new nationalist movement and even in elements of the identity politics left of looking at humans like a blob instead of as an individual. And every time you do that, you're forced into some very, very dangerous, very, very pernicious ideas. Yeah, because when you talk about the people as a blob, as you describe it, as if they're in a sort of almost like a single virtuous unit, that by definition means that difference within it is impossible that those are divisions and you can't have divisions within that with that uh, within that construct and so that's really been the project of those those totalitarian societies or organizations those power structures has been to really obliterate difference and to obliterate the individual that's, exactly that's been right, the project yeah. like there's a quote from um from Kant um, which is, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Which, by the way, I wanted to use as a quote at the beginning of the book, but my publisher was just like, no, we don't do quotes. What's the point of quotes at the front of books? You're just wasting everybody's time. <laughs> so it's like, okay, fine. So we went. But that's ultimately where this stuff comes down to. Liberalism is for the crooked timbers, right? It's the, it's the system of thought that, re- that yeah. recognizes what humanity is, that we're not straight lines. Fascism you know, comes from that, the, the Latin word facies, you know, the bundle of sticks collected together so they form one object, which is stronger than any one of them on their own. The uniformity, conformity. And what you find constantly in liberal history, we don't use it so much now, I'm not sure why, um, is this idea of variety as an organism and conformity as a machine. That's the constant metaphor that you see, mm. that liberalism is for the organism. It's for the natural change. It's always pictured as a tree or a plant that each person has their own unique eccentricities and values and interests and identities, all these different ways that make them distinct and that they cannot be considered homogenous with those like them, or, and this is a really crucial part, fundamentally distinct from those who are not like them. The other school of thought, which again goes to Rousseau, to communism, to nationalism and populism that we see today, is the opposite of that. It's disregarding individual differences, homogenizing blocks, but then the most dangerous part, looking at other blocks of humanity and going, you are fundamentally different to us. You know, we will not coexist. We will not mix. There's no communication possible between us. There's no empathy possible between us. And we are fundamentally in a state of, if not war, then at best acrimony 
or at best sort of an impossibility of communication. So that really, those two currents, I think, go all the way back really to the beginning of the scientific revolution, the last 400 years of human history. Yes, I particularly liked in your chapter uh, called uh, rather ominously Death, you talk about (laughs) fascism and communism, uh, which regard themselves as implacable opposites, as you say, but in fact share the common cause of destroying the individual. Um, so I thought that's a you know it's a very it's a point very well made, and you also go on to say um, I think a bit later in the book, but you describe this uh, system of liberalism. You call it um, uh, the most radical program political program in the history of humankind, and at another point, an enormous enormous boisterous confounding bloody thing. <laughs> uh, and and so coming through all of those is that sense that as you say, liberalism. There's something fundamentally almost biological about it, whereas these other systems are mechanical or inanimate in some way. They're 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 not human. Mm. That that liberalism there's a there's a kind of a natural biological humanity to liberalism that does not feature in those other systems. Yeah, that's right, right. And you get this sense, um but once you latch yourself on to the individual as a unit. I mean, this sounds very right wing, right? Especially in Britain, because we, and actually, I think arguably in Australia as well. But especially because for those of us who grew up with Margaret Thatcher, she would constantly talk of the individual. And what she meant by that was laissez faire, free market, you know, ferocity, really. Um, in fact, the individual can be processed in a variety of really very left wing ways. You can go much further left, for instance, in Scandinavian social democracy under it. It just matters how you tend to sort of. Um, interpret the material consequences of basing your moral agenda on the unit of the individual. But the thing it gives you is this, um, you start grounding your political thought of what people do. That's the big difference between that and ideas like communism or fascism, that they take a kind of utopian ideal of what they think is perfect, whether it's race leadership or under communism, whether it's full equality uh, or rather, you know, collective ownership of the means of production and just impose it on all those bent twigs, on all those various humans with their various interests and eccentricities and dreams, and impose that homogenizing force on them. Because liberalism comes from the other direction, it comes from the bottom. It looks at what is it that people are doing? Like, what is it that matters to them? Because these are the things that we must protect. Probably the best thinker for this uh, in the 20th century was Isaiah Berlin, who is a very sloppy, weird, mercurial, treacherous thinker. I mean, he asks questions that really that start to prise open a box in liberalism, a very dangerous box around identity and belonging and patriotism that still make people very, very uncomfortable. But he had that core idea of what people do matters. You know, if the individual says that they're patriotic, then liberalism must admire patriotism because that is what people say they care about. If the individual cares about romance or beauty or adventure, then these things must also matter to liberalism because they're expressions of the individual. So it's radical, not just because it constantly seeks to control power and not just because it protects minorities, religious minorities, racial minorities, sexual minorities, any minority you find. It's radical because it always cares about that one person standing up to the machine, that what matters to them matters to liberalism. And therefore, no matter where you are in time, no matter which country, no matter what agenda, it is always fundamentally radical. It's always a challenge to power because of the unit of analysis that it starts with. It's very well put. Is it a natural corollary to democracy? Like, uh, is it perhaps the only system of thought 
that can contemplate a long-term future with democracy in which democracy is not ultimately obliterated through that process? So I think so. Um, well, I, I, also, I, want to, I want to caveat it a bit just because liberalism's relationship with democracy has not been straightforward. And, you know, if you go back to John Stuart Mill, Harriet Taylor times, so, you know, Victor, the Victorian period, um, there's actually quite a lot of hesitancy from liberals about democracy. Um, for instance, so John Stuart Mill said, look, we, we, we know we're going there. We want to get there. We're concerned that unless there's a higher degree of education for the working class, what you'll get is the tyranny of the majority. You know, you'll get this part of society that will be able to overrule the eccentric and the strange um, and those who don't think right. Um, so it's not. And he was, for instance, opposed even to secret ballots, which actually makes no sense. It was one of those rare issues that John Stuart Mill got catastrophically wrong. So there has always been a difficult relationship there. But the idea of democracy to me was birthed pretty much. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm skipping the Greek period, because if you talk about the Greek period, you have to go back to ancient Greece every time you say anything about any idea. Um, but in the modern period, I mean, you look at the English Civil War and the idea of democracy pops up at pretty much exactly the same time as the idea of individual rights. So you're, you're in the 1640s here, you're well ahead of, you know, the American Revolution or the French Revolution. And it comes up really from this speech by uh, Colonel Thomas Rainsborough in the Putney debate. So this is a moment where the English revolutionaries have captured their king. They're at war with their own parliament. They've mutinied against their officers. And they gather in this church in Putney just outside London. And they have an extremely sophisticated debate on political philosophy. And in part of that, Colonel Thomas Rainsborough says, no man ought to live under a government unless he has, by his own consent, put himself under that government. So it flowed from the same ideas of individual liberty that you would need it. Now, many other movements talk about caring about democracy. But we look at, I look at nationalism right now, and they don't care about democracy. Only the votes of those who support them count, because they're not interested in the individual. They're interested fundamentally in the homogenous mass of the virtuous people. And that, I think, takes you to what you have seen over the last few weeks in America, right? Like, I mean, populism claims to be democratic. It claims to always ride the waves. But the second that people start voting against it, suddenly that democratic credibility completely falls away. And you're told, well, it's all a conspiracy by the elite. You know, the same old stuff we constantly hear from these guys, done by the media, done by, you know, the parliament, blah, blah, blah. And there we are. So I think, honestly, right now, you look at Donald Trump and you see just how paper thin that populist commitment to democracy really is. Perfectly put. Let's take a quick break there and be back in just a moment. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. 
Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Ian, you were saying just before the break about uh, Donald Trump and and uh, I suppose nationalism or populism's relation, you know, commitment to democracy and its stability and how tissue thin that, that turns out to be and I think it's a, a point very well made. I tend to think about populism... If you know, think about it in terms of a machine, it's almost like an over revving engine. Uh, you know, for a brief moment, it seems like it's performing at, at, um, you know, it, seems, it appears to at least some of its uh, adherents like it's performing well. It's, you know, it's hyper democratic almost. It's, uh, it's, it's the system expressing the people's will, finally taking their government back from the elites or whatever the, uh, whatever the, the, the project is. But then it turns out to just not have any stability. It turns out to not be able to perform, just like an engine that over revs, you know, it blows up. Mm. And we've, as you say, we see that happening in the US at the moment. And we see it with the underperformance of governments everywhere. We see it in the UK at the moment with uh, the underperformance of uh, of Boris Johnson's government, particularly in relation to uh, coronavirus, where it has just proved from our assessment sitting here in Australia to just be sort of incompetent really all mm-hmm. the way through. No, that's exactly right. I mean, that's, you don't see this. So look, there's nuance with all of these, right? I mean, for instance, like you take Viktor Orban and Viktor Orban claims to care about democracy. But of course, Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, under Fidesz started tearing apart any basis upon which democracy can function almost as soon as he took power in 2010. So, you know, any kind of independent media, independent newspapers basically cease to exist. There's a few outlets that struggle away, but he basically has brought them all in-house and bought up you know, taken to his chums and then just brought in under his own control. Even the sort of billboards that you see advertising in the streets, radio, websites, it's all been brought under control. The think tanks have been brought under control. The courts have been brought under control. So now when there's an election victory for Fidesz, it's, you know, it's hard to say that it has any democratic legitimacy at all because it's a closed ecosystem where he provides all of the information. Um, Now, you don't see that. I'm sorry, let me add to that to then say, curiously, Victor Orban hasn't had a bad coronavirus. He's actually, they locked down pretty fast. They've been relatively effective. I mean, not perfect, but like most of sort of Central Europe, he's actually had a pretty good coronavirus and was actually quite effective. Now you take another example, take Boris Johnson uh, in the UK. Boris Johnson is not in any way as pernicious as Victor Orban. He's not even as pernicious as Donald Trump although he may arguably be weirdly more amoral on the basis that he has no com- no real convictions whatsoever. Um, but he's not a tried and tested nationalist. He isn't. He's just riding the wave of what he thinks will work for him electorally, and it has. So he hasn't done any of those things to, to sort of British democracy that we've seen in Hungary. On the flip side, though, he's infinitely less competent when it comes to something like coronavirus. And part of that is that, you know, he is genuinely fundamentally uninterested in objective reality. The prism through which decisions are made in his administration is how it plays for tribal politics as it is delivered through a predominantly Facebook electoral machine at the next election. That's the the core idea that runs through the decision-making process. And viruses do not respond to that calculation. So we found ourselves again and again staring in abject disbelief as the government does the thing that it was told to do one month after it was needed to be done. And of course, in a pandemic, after a month, usually the people who've 
are now catching coronavirus will be the ones to die in a month's time, right? It takes two weeks before they go to hospital, usually a couple of weeks in hospital, those who do pass away, and then they die. So by the time that you've done it, it's on the basis of data that is already like the, like the light that you see from a distant star, right? It already happened. The data that you're using is already far too late. So over and over, we've seen in the UK, actions taken way too late because of an aversion to empirical reality that ended up costing thousands and thousands of lives. It's really fascinating to watch Boris Johnson's government in that light and the, the point you make about his, uh, his his affection or interest in objective reality is is really a fascinating one because it, that I have to say from an Australian perspective, that looks like what's happening, like the, the government isn't looking at the same numbers that we're looking at, the same basic statistics. So obviously, Australia's in a much better place, but mm. these are both island nations. These are both nations that at least theoretically uh, have that natural barrier, that natural geographic barrier of being an island and can uh, limit uh, the entry of people and, and um, you know, take dramatic actions in respect of, of their population. Some will argue the actions that have been taken in Australia are too extreme. Many liberals, uh, we're talking about liberalism, many smaller liberals would uh, have some concerns about, you know, the draconian controls that have been placed on free movement uh, in Australia. But nonetheless, the situation now in this place is dramatically better than most places in the world. And perhaps that's a common feature with uh, the Victor Orbans and some of the other, um, you know, strong governments in, in uh, states where they have a lot of control. I mean, China is an example of that too. That's where mm-hmm. the virus started, mm-hmm. but China has suffered way fewer deaths than most places because they could literally just lock up the whole of Wuhan and, and, um, you know, you know, by man, by fear, to just stop a whole lot of lot of travel. That's true, but you know, we should also point out just just briefly that you know you don't have to be an authoritarian state yeah. to have dealt with the virus, right? Like, I mean, lots of countries that don't have that kind of really centralized infrastructure just dealt with it really well, essentially by being on top of the data, by knowing that we lock down hard, we introduce track and trace, we wait for a vaccine. That was ultimately, whichever way you look at all this stuff, that was the way to go. And, and, you know, it wasn't just China, it was plenty of other countries around the world, social democracies, very liberal countries, that just understood that was the b- best way of protecting the economy and saving lives uh, at the same time. Yeah, indeed. And, and that, in fact, if you don't get the health situation under control, you won't have much of an economy anyway. Exactly. That's been the lesson in Australia, and I think it's been one that's been uh, managed quite well and the same in New Zealand and, and a number of other places. Can I just go back to uh, to your book uh, because um, it you know it's really a wonderful um, wonderful book uh, quite a long one and uh, but but it's got a very strong kind of narrative theme through it you've written it in a very communicative style I think very accessible and uh, you know really tell the, the the history of the development of liberalism and I want to just read uh, the opening to your chapter five called rather. Um, Rather curiously, at least when when one gets there um, to that part of the book, it's called Harriet and John. And allow me just to read the first uh, the first couple of pars, and then then we'll come back to you. Thanks, man. They met at a dinner party in London, sometime in 1830, with nothing in their favour. She was a mother of two, with another soon on the way, trapped in a stultifying marriage. He was the half-broken product of a child experiment turned into a faulty human logic machine by a distant and obsessive father. Theirs would be the greatest love story in the history of ideas. Her name was Harriet Taylor. His was John Stuart Mill. 
By the time their romance was over, they had turned liberalism into the fully formed system of political thought we know today. Now, that's a really, uh, I think it's a, a beautiful piece of writing for a start, but it's a really compelling way to drag uh, the reader into this this story, the story of, the, of the, the development of liberalism as an idea. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the significance of Harriet and John. And, I mean, Harriet uh, is... Uh, pretty much an unknown figure as you go on to make the point. Yeah, and that's, I mean, incredible to me. He is, you know, John Stuart Mill, father of liberalism. You know, you could, you could pack libraries with the amount of weighty tomes written about him. Harriet Taylor, either forgotten or despised. Um, you know, it's the second she died, these vitriolic attacks on her personality, um, on her work, calling her an airhead, you know, who managed to seduce this great philosopher, but also, and often in the same sentence by the same writer, this kind of sort of philosophical femme fatale who, you know, would would cleverly unveil herself into these circles. Of course, these interpretations are completely contradictory. She couldn't be an airhead and clever enough to unveil herself into the world of all these philosophers. Um, And they continue to our own day. Like when people mention her now, it is in this dismissive, hateful way. In actual fact, she is the mother of liberalism. And the work that the two of them did was, by their own description, by John Stuart Mill's own description, a joint intellectual project. Now, some people try to claim that he um that he tried to he was just so madly in love, he exaggerated her contribution. The truth is, he was fastidious about exactly which bits of work she contributed to and how much. So you take his book on logic. And he was like, she didn't contribute anything to this. In fact, her letter to him after she read it, she just said, it's just so very, very dry. She had no interest in symbolic logic at all. Um, certain chapters of Principles of Political Economy she contributed to. And in fact, those turned out to be the most important, but others she didn't. The crucial work, which is really the emancipation of women and subjugation of women, the two early works of liberal feminism, and then On Liberty, which is as close as you get to a Bible in liberalism. Those were joint projects. And by joint projects, I mean that we can see that very often a sentence would be started in one of their handwriting in the notes and finish in the other person's handwriting. Literally, this was two people working as one. She was the mother of liberalism and she was simply erased. And it wouldn't have surprised them the fact that she was erased because so much of their work was about taking liberal principles. And for the first time, for the first time, I mean, there have been 200 years of kind of proto-liberal theory by this stage, asking questions about, well, hang on a minute, if we care about the freedom of the individual, why is nobody talking about women? Like, Why do women just get left like some kind of non-political unit, as if they're the same as the dog in the house or the slippers by the fire, as if they're basically sort of flora and fauna, not to undergo any kind of political analysis? Because if we look at this class of people, what we see is that they have had their freedom systematically removed over the entirety of human history. And they provided this remorseless, logical assault, full of moral indignation, but also full of reason and structured logical argument for why this had taken place and the effects of it and how to change it. So I think looking back from there, they would not be remotely surprised by the way that she was treated afterwards, because it was part and parcel of the same process that they themselves had attacked in their own time. 
And this is a, obviously a quite a common fault of, of history that women have been written out of history in, in so many ways. But it's also, I think, uh, as you go on to point out in the book, one of the, uh, you know, one of liberalism's faults, one of the limitations of liberalism is its uh, ability to contemplate uh, the existence of, of power constructed in any way other than being held and operated by white males yeah exactly in fact and not you could even go further than that you could say wealthy heterosexual white males um and this is really an idea in liberalism called the community of the free so each time people talk about individual freedom but what they really mean is freedom for a set group of people right so i mean a classic liberal document Mm. um the constitution of the united states (laughs) it's a really really good liberal document. Arguably, I mean, not arguably, uh, it is the most complex view of the separation of powers available at that time in history. Very good on individual rights. And what do you find in it? The safeguarding of slavery. Now, under no possible criteria can you fit slavery with individual freedom, right? I mean, beyond murder, it's impossible to think of anything which more contradicts individual freedom than slavery. But the way that was done was to go, well, they're just not in the community of the free. And that happened typically in liberal history with property. Anyone without property was not considered in the, in, in the community of the free. Happened with women. It obviously happened um, with sort of the gay community. I mean, you saw that more explicitly in the Victorian period and later. Before that, it obviously wasn't even, there was no point in even mentioning that stuff. It happened with religion. You know, Catholics would be excluded or Muslims would be excluded. Over and over the same process. But over and over, that group of the community of the free expanded and expanded and expanded until you got really to the full franchise and full free education, which allowed in the 1960s, say ethnic minorities I'm talking about in the UK, the US, most places in the West to start making their claim, women to start making their claim on what constituted individual freedom. And that was really, you know, the, the great battles for social equality that we saw in the 60s were conducted in that way on liberal terms. But these groups started asking a question of liberalism, which I think is, which liberalism would have been smart to pay proper attention to. And that was, as your question sort of raised, standpoint theory. It's basically saying, what took you guys so long? Like, why have you spent so long talking about individual freedom, but you never really seemed to care what was happening to black people? You never really seemed to care what was happening to women. And their answer to that was to say, like, we process information by virtue of our experience. So when, you know, a white wealthy guy in the Victorian period thinks about individual freedom, he thinks about free speech and he thinks about property rights. He probably doesn't think about things like, you know, office harassment or racial discrimination in employment contracts. But if if you do start asking more people what kind of infringements on their freedom exist, you will find that they give answers that correspond to the circumstances in which they have found themselves. So it was a demand for liberalism to start asking more people, to start listening more, to start being more egalitarian in the way that it came up with philosophical ideas so that it could address all the various kinds of infringement on freedom that we find in our society. And that was a message which, frankly, liberalism hasn't done a good enough job of taking on board. I think since the 60s, it should have done a much better job. There was great gifts for it to find whole new arenas of freedom that it could discover whole new sets of people that it could protect 
against the ravages of executive power and of prejudice and of the tyranny of the majority that it mostly failed to do because it mostly failed to pay attention to standpoint theories, moral demand that you put yourself outside of your circumstance if you're going to deal with universal philosophical categories. And so it essentially ceded that fertile ground to uh, the more radical left, uh, to the Labor left in Australia and uh, and to a more radical left um, around many uh, countries, I suppose. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you think that is because liberals by then, uh, people who regarded themselves as liberals, were also allied to conservatism, to to a to a sort of a conservative political standpoint that they just weren't open to discussions about uh, gay rights or or feminism, environmentalism, a range of other things that uh, that go to questions of freedom. Yeah, look, I think there was two sets of betrayals, I and mean, basically, yes, as you're saying, that's entirely correct, and that comes from two betrayals. Right, the first one is the one that I was mentioning before, really marginalised groups of just not caring sufficiently, not listening sufficiently to marginalized groups. And now those groups, if you leave a set of people behind, other people will go to speak to them. And the the kind of movements that have gone to speak to marginalized groups are essentially from the Rousseau mold, from the mold of the people. They don't talk about the people. Instead, they talk about race, sexuality, um, ethnicity, uh, minority status as a kind of homogenous block again, with very thick walls where you can't listen to other people on the other side. So you take now the issue of cultural appropriation, right? Now, cultural appropriation is a classic example of the idea that culture itself is homogenous and unchanging. You know, one group just owns, I don't know, whatever, braids, for instance, or a particular kind of cooking. And that any other group is not entitled to enter its territory, for instance, to start sharing those recipes or adapting those recipes without the gatekeepers being able to give authorization to that. So you see a classic formulation of that Rousseau collective consciousness idea. On the other side, the betrayal came because of laissez-faire. And this part has always been part of liberalism. That's part of the economic dispute within liberalism. When we say the individual is free, what do we mean? Right? Do we mean that you get to keep all your stuff and everyone else can sort of go to hell? Or do we mean that, well, we have to tax people a bit, we have to take a bit of money in order to you know, build schools and hospitals and, and welfare systems so that there's more freedom for more people by interfering a bit in property rights. That's the sort of egalitarian or radical liberal school, which again has always been part of liberal thought. And I would say responsible for the vast majority of the left-wing achievements in all Western countries, especially over the last sort of 100 years or so. So that school really started to lose out in from the mid to late 1970s, essentially during stagflation, when Thatcher came to power, when Reagan came to power, when Milton Friedman one of the core architects, one of the core thinkers, really, in laissez-faire liberalism, was totally ascendant on the world stage. The result of that was left-behind communities, predominantly white, predominantly working class, in the US, in Britain, in countries across the West. You think of places like Detroit. In Britain, you think of these northern towns. Now, where were the places that voted for Trump in 2016? Where were the ones that voted for Brexit? in 2016, those same left-behind communities who've been told by laissez-faire liberals, well, you know, the market decides, we don't need to really put any money into supporting your industry or to reskilling you or really trying to protect you from this ravages of globalization. You just have to, you know, retrain us in Silicon Valley. I'm sure that'll be easy enough for you. Um, 
those two groups, marginalized groups on the one hand and white working class groups um, on the other, were just left behind by liberalism that just sort of was seduced by laissez-faire, by its own right wing into thinking that it's all hands off. And the result was not some great triumph, but of course that these groups had other places they could go, nationalism on the one hand, left-wing identity politics on the other. And then suddenly you wake up and you're in the world that we're in right now, which is the culture war, which is a zero-sum game of identity where there can be no compromise because there is no individual within those ideas. It's not about what do we do, it's about who are we? And that is a zero-sum game. It is the culture war, and it's a result fundamentally of liberal failure. Well, tell me this about liberalism, because I'm just trying to get my head around where, what the, what, where it can go, what the future is of liberalism. I'm wondering, how does uh, liberalism contemplate an idea such as, say, universal basic income? Is that anathema to liberals because it involves um, – as you say, it involves some level of uh, taxation, some level of state taking responsibility for individuals. Um, but at the other hand, it might be also a way of delivering a basic freedom to every citizen, a foundation from which they can then go off and live their lives in the multiple different ways that they want to do it. Is, 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 a, is a universal basic income, which I suppose is another way of saying, is a welfare state um, antithetical to liberalism or is it compatible in certain circumstances no it's completely compatible in fact the welfare state is is the creation of liberalism i mean liberal, liberals made it except if you're milton friedman i suppose well milton friedman didn't yeah, he's a different kind of liberal right so i mean the, the liberals that created the welfare state are radical liberals egalitarian liberals so they're following from a tradition that was really sort of originates with john stuart mill and harriet taylor um, and was then given sort of arguably sort of much more thorough academic status by john maynard keynes um, and others as well, I'm, I'm simplifying here, where the idea was fundamentally this, the state has to interfere in the market. John Stuart Mill put it this way. He said, the question of the state versus the market admits of no universal solution. So in other words, you know, Marxist, communist, socialist, they pretty much always say the market is wrong in any sort of part of our material life. Uh, the state is the way to go. The laissez-faire liberals Right-wing liberals like Hayek, for instance, say um, the state is always wrong in pretty much every material condition we find. The market is always correct. The radical liberal proposition is we will judge on a case-by-case basis where the market works or where the state works. For instance, I mean, most say, you know, you'd want state use for education, uh, for healthcare, But for John Stuart Mill, there was no limitation to what it would do. There was plenty of areas of utilities that you would want to avoid a private monopoly and on and on you go. The real danger was being seduced by laissez-faire into the idea that the market is always right, the state is always wrong. Under radical liberalism, the state and the market must both be considered with the highest amount of vigilance, always treated as a potential threat, but also both recognised for the things that they can do right and are successful at. So you look at something like universal credit. Universal credit could be rejected or accepted on liberal grounds, depending partly on what kind of a liberal you are. But for where we are now with universal credit, the liberal answer, I think, is we need more data. Like you would not, if you were running a country right now on the basis of the pilot test we've had, want to just implement that wholesale across your whole country. Because it's we just don't have enough information yet as to what the potential consequences of introducing it are. 
This is something that a liberal philosopher called um, Karl Popper was very, very good on. And unfortunately, he's not in the book, although for my pains, I wrote that entire chapter and then realized that I couldn't put it into the narrative. Um, So I had to get rid of it, which still traumatizes me deep in my heart. Um, He said, one of the strengths of liberalism, one of the things that makes it stronger than most ideologies is the fact that it is open. People think of this as a weakness. But in fact, every time you implement a policy, you will get unintended consequences. And one of the strengths of liberalism is it is open to discovering those consequences and fixing it rather than just hardening, fossilizing into dogma and insisting on its system, no matter what the actual empirical results of something are. Now, with universal basic income, it's an extremely attractive proposition, I think, on liberal grounds, because you're essentially freeing people from the drudgery of the work they have to do and thereby liberating them to think, what is it that I want to do? If I don't have to keep on making the rent, you know, next week, next week, next week, what could I become if I have a little bit more material freedom? That seems very, very attractive. So then we'd need to know what are the consequences of it? Is it possible that it would harden policy against immigration, for instance, by suddenly bringing with citizenship a lot of free money from the state? Could that result in us suddenly taking a more pernicious attitude towards uh, immigrants than we even do already? Is there anything else it might do to us economically that would lower all of our sort of uh, capacity for freedom by virtue of destabilizing the level of finance at the national level? So essentially, you would say it can go either way on liberalism. But right now, more than anything in the world, we need more data. Indeed. And I think a lot of uh, right wing liberals would say that it uh, removes uh, in the need for incentive or for initiative. It um mm-hmm. It rewards people for essentially doing nothing. That that would be the sort of standard liberal with a large L uh, response to it in in Australia, for example. I imagine in most places around the world. There's also, I mean, th- there are um, some laissez-faire guys I've spoken to who are quite attracted to it, um, although they're imagining it at a really very low level, essentially as a simplification of the existing welfare structure. Um, there is a, a debate as well as to what you include. I mean, in a country like Britain, I mean, if, if you put housing benefit into that thing, you're suddenly going to get a very, very large payment. You know, that's a housing benefit is very expensive. So you're suddenly going to have to spend an awful lot of money. However, if you keep it out, you lose the laissez-faire wing from their support because what they like about it is the fact that it simplifies all the different kinds of welfare. So there's a lot of, uh, quite apart from the values sort of questions that I've just mentioned, in terms of practical implementation and maintaining a broad electoral coalition who might support it, there's a lot of quite difficult questions there as well. Ian Dunn, congratulations on this fascinating book and thanks for discussing these ideas with Democracy Sausage listeners. We've only really scraped the uh, the surface of, of this book, of course. It's uh, more than 400 pages, but it really is a rollicking read and I strongly recommend it to people. It's called How to Be a Liberal. It's out now. Um, I think the publisher is, you can probably tell me. Cambry Press. Yes, and uh, as I say, it is out now. So thanks, Ian Dunt, for being with us. It's been really terrific to have you on Democracy Sausage Extra. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.